Hello and welcome to God vs. God, the podcast where we look up to the heavens and into the past to pit ancient gods against each other for the chance at the ultimate comeback to help save our troubled world. Mm. And this week we have a humdinger of a show, <laughs> which is a technical podcast term Yes, uh, for a show that you have at least 13% more, excite, more excitement about than average. Wow. And this episode hits that mark, at least for me. <laughs> yeah, we'll find out. Uh, because we have the goddess of love and beauty mm. against the god of medicine and healing. So it's like a Marvin Gaye mega hit. <laughs> Only we'll be doing it backwards order with the healing part first. Yes. As it's an even number. And I have Asclepius, god of medicine and healing, who will take on Aphrodite, the goddess of love. So... I, for one, I'm looking forward to your test of your euphemism skills. Yeah. And double entendre applications. <laughs> they will be prominently on display tonight. This is this is my Olympics of, of keeping <laughs> double it clean. entendre Olympics. <laughs> yes. So, with that said, uh, I think it's uh, time to get started. So this is God versus God, episode X, season yes. one, Greco-Roman style. Asclepius versus Aphrodite. So uh, I have Asclepius, god of medicine, and Asclepius is the the Greek name, and for the most part, was also the name used by the Romans. Mm. Now originally there was a Roman equivalent to Asclepius, named Vihovis, and that one doesn't roll off the tongue no, uh, too didn't, much. Didn't, so didn't quite stick, did it? <laughs> so he 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 didn't stick around either. No. And by the time Ovid wrote, uh, they're full on, full in on Asclepius, as we'll see. Yeah. So, in terms of etymology, Asclepius may mean to cut open, uh, which would be related, you know, to his job. Sure. As as a surgeon, or it also may be related to his origin story, hmm. uh, which I'll discuss right now. So, mm -hmm. in terms of origin. Asclepius is the son of Apollo, and usually his mother is named as Coronis, who's a northern Greek princess. Mm. Uh, occasionally, uh, some sources name Arsinoe, uh, who's a princess from Messenia. But according to the Greek travel writer uh, Pausinius, uh, it's really only the Messenians who claim that. And nobody else believes them. They're a bunch of liars. So, <laughs> yeah, we're going to go with Coronis. Um, so Apollo was in love with Coronis. They have their liaison, resulting in her pregnancy with Asclepius. Uh, but then we get into something perhaps beyond just the shoddy record keeping that we've sadly become used to. Yes. Into an actual mystery or a 3,000-year-old cold case. I am shocked to hear you say that because I also have a 3,000-year-old cold case. Oh, it's, it's this a, is kismet. This is already a humdinger. This is barely this started. Is, uh, yeah, it's a mystery episode. So a couple different versions of this story of what happened to Cronus and of Asclepius' birth. We heard actually one of the versions in episode 7, the Artemis episode, uh, which I will include in our scenarios. But I want to go through a couple of the other more famous ones 
and see if we can solve the case. All right. All right. Are you ready? People love a good murder mystery podcast. Yes, this, so. this is like uh, true crime meets mythology. Oh, my goodness. It's the, the best of both worlds. I, I, I'm, I'm already salivating. All right. So story number one is that Coronas and Apollo get together, but then she falls in love with a mortal man named Iscus, mm. and she starts seeing Iscus. But Apollo is told by a raven, his spy raven, that he has watching Coronas, and he kills her in a jealous retaliation only to discover she is pregnant as she's dying. Mm. Then Apollo cuts Asclepius out and saves the baby. Story number two is similar. Again, Coronas jilts Iscus, but not for a, but it's not Apollo who kills her. Instead, it's Artemis who does it uh, in order to defend her brother and family's honor. Mm. Again, Apollo does the rescue. Though there's also a story, sort of 2B, which is exactly the same as uh, 2, but it's Hermes, a.k.a. Mercury, who right. does the rescuing. Uh, then... Then story number three, it's a little bit different. And this comes by uh, Pausanias, and he says, uh, in this one, Coronis is not killed at all, uh, but rather she hides the pregnancy mm. and gives birth to Asclepius on a mountain and leaves him there exposed. Yes. Then baby Asclepius is nursed by a she-goat mm -hmm. and watched over and protected by sheepdog. So... Eventually, the shepherd who owns the sheepdog goes looking for it, and he finds the baby there, and he's thinking of adopting it, but as he gets closer, he notices the divine glow coming off the baby. So oh, yeah. he very quickly puts his finger on the side of his nose, says, not it, and slowly <laughs> walks away. Not in for that. Eventually, at some point, the Olympian authorities you know, become aware of the divine foundling and Asclepius is transported to the care of Chiron, wisest of centaurs. Mm. So lastly, we have story number four, and that is the one we heard in episode seven. Uh, there's no mention of Iscus, but instead Artemis again kills Coronis, uh, this time in revenge for Apollo's trick of getting Artemis to kill her crush Orion in a test of distance archery. <laughs> and just pure revenge. Right, so, right. Uh, so what do you think? Do any of these sound more plausible to you, Matt? I mean, the third option, just the, the preponderance of exposure that we hear in these stories. So many uh, rejected babies. So many shepherds or men in the fields <laughs> happen to wander by. Yeah, these can't can't step anywhere without... No. I mean, there's there's at least one, if not two of those coming up in the second part of this episode. That's how <laughs> that's how plentiful they are. Yeah. Um, and the the hesitation of that mortal to get involved in any kind of divine matters, I, I think, feels very realistic. So, to certainly me. understandable. That, yeah. That's interesting. I think, you know, I might go with a mix myself. Mm. Uh, you know, the thing with Iscus actually is a commonly told story. So I think there's something going on there and we know that apollo occasionally was a little bit vexed when it came to love sure so i think that happened uh coronas exposing asclepius i think the one thing about that is that apollo is the god of prophecy ah good point and so hiding the pregnancy from him he's, he's gonna see a bird he should, <laughs> he should have seen that coming that's true <laughs> there's, there's, 
either he's going to notice, you know, yeah. the baby bump, or more likely he's going to see a robin on the ground and suddenly realize uh, that she's 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 pregnant. So yeah, yeah. good point. So I don't, so maybe not that one in this case, even though uh, it was a common occurrence. Uh, now Artemis killing her. Yeah, I buy that. Yeah, I definitely. I, and and Apollo cutting him out in both of the first and the second also yeah. feels very on brand. He was a very crafty, really good in the moment. Yeah. As you mentioned, not always lucky or graceful in love, but certainly from a practical point of view, really fast on his feet. Yeah. Yeah. So I she I, I think probably Artemis did kill her. It it was probably in relation to the Orion thing. She had no mm -hmm. idea about Iscus. Yeah. She's got her own business going on. Uh, ulterior motives yeah we yeah. all bring we all bring our baggage so. to every uh, murder we're accused of committing. <laughs> yeah you know <laughs> multiple uh she, you know she had motivation she certainly had the means uh and yeah. the opportunity so yes um you know if there's any truth to the she goat thing you know maybe it was a daycare situation yeah you not, know not hermes has got a lot of babies to transport different places you know daycare's hard even back then uh so you know Found a trusted goat, good dog, you know, as as one does. Absolutely. So I'll, I'll leave the, leave them here with this goat. I'm sure it'll be fine. <laughs> yep, yep. Not out of the question. I'll be back. I'm going on lunch. So, <laughs> uh, you know, you know whether or not we've solved that. I, I think I think we've got you know narrowed it down a little bit. A good least. working theory, I'd say at yeah. this point. Yeah. So in any case, Sleepy's mother is out of the picture, and his father really isn't full time dad material. Hmm. So uh, he is taken and to be raised by Chiron, again, the wisest of centaurs. Uh, and it's with Chiron that he begins to learn about the healing arts as well as hunting. Yeah, just because it's the oldie times and that's yeah. what they like to do. Sure. So um, Gotta eat. Yeah. And uh, the only other childhood story we get about Asclepius is that at some point he befriends a snake as a, a pet, I guess, and that the snake licks his ears. So, uh, by most accounts, at this time, Asclepius is a demigod hero and not yet a full god, though we will hear about that story in just a bit. Mm -hmm. um, but Asclepius pretty quickly overtakes the knowledge not only of Chiron, but of his father Apollo in the healing arts uh, and starts to gain fame around the Mediterranean as a healer. And according to an ode by the poet Pindar, uh, he gets patients from far and wide with every type of gross malady. And so from Pindar, he says, some plagued with sores or festering growths, some wounded by strokes of weapons or the slinger shot of stone, others with limbs ravaged by the fiery heat of the sun or winter's cold. To each person for every various ill, he made the remedy and gave deliverance from pain. Hmm. So oozing sores, open wounds, severe sunburn, frostbite, it's got you covered. That's, yeah, it's all in the day's work in the uh, Asclepius ER. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, you know, his, his most recognizable symbol is a staff, again, with a snake yes. on it, yeah. uh, which even today is international symbol for medical treatment and medicine. Mm -hmm. And that staff uh, with a snake has kind of an interesting backstory uh, it's related to one of his pivotal myths so at some point Asclepius takes the healing show on the road and when he gets to the land of King Minos 
He arrives just after the prince, crown prince, has died, right before he arrives. And so the king orders Asclepius to bring his son back from the dead. He's heard so much about his healing. And Asclepius isn't so sure about this ethically. Uh, <laughs> and he's, you know, threat of fate, all that kind of stuff. Sure. And he isn't sure how to do it either. Well, yeah. I mean, I don't know if they teach you that in, uh, in medical school, even back then. That's no. It's an no. advanced skill, if anything. Yes, very advanced. So to give him a little bit of motivation and some time to, you know, think about it, the king throws him in the dungeon. Sure. And says, you know, you can come out once you've brought my, my son back from the dead. That's it. <laughs> we have Nothing a deal. <laughs> uh, so Sclepius is deep in thought, sitting in his cot in the dungeon, leaning on his staff, trying to, you know, either think of a cure or maybe an escape plan, mm -hmm. whichever one comes first. Right. So, And he doesn't notice a snake crawl onto his staff. And then the text that says, distracted in mind, Asclepius killed it, striking it again and again as it tried to flee. So it makes it seem as though, you know, just when he's deep in thought, he's in the habit of wildly swinging the staff around the room. <laughs> which, may, which maybe he was. We all have our own process, I suppose. Yeah, it it's, uh, probably made it hard to get study partners in college. <laughs> You're right. Keep, keep a roommate, but... <laughs> Uh, in any case, you know, this has another consequence in that he's killed the snake, but then a little bit later, another snake comes into the room and this time he's paying attention and that snake brings an herb within its mouth and places it on the dead snake's head and the dead snake rises up oh. and is brought back to life and the two of them slither off now asclepius knows his herbs thankfully yes they do you know if it was that. me I, I i just be grabbing on i don't know <laughs> it's parsley is it cilantro i can't tell um but asclepius does know it and so he's noted it and he uses it to revive the prince and free himself from imprisonment and thereafter takes the snake becomes sacred to him and takes the snake on the staff which happens to be the one that he killed yeah, oddly, uh, as his symbol, um, you know, and so due to this fame as a healer, Sleepius also gets invited on a couple of other adventures. He is in the party of Jason and the Argonauts, mm -hmm. and he's in the Caledonian boar hunt, which was the hunt for that boar monster, uh, the Artemis, uh, sicked on Caledonia, right? Uh, both of which seems like good uh, places to bring the world's greatest doctor. Along totally, with yeah, so. smart. So, so they knew what they were doing. Yeah. Uh, now, in addition to his just raw skills and training in medicine, Sleepies has a couple other things up his sleeve. So uh, he had some extra abilities. He, as the son of Apollo, he was able to use prophecy mm. uh, to help him discover treatments. So that, you know, cuts down on the A-B testing. <laughs> right. It, yeah. it smooths the FDA red tape. Big time. So, so he used that. And then, sometime after this dead prince incident, apparently, Athena gives Asclepius the blood of the Gorgon's veins. Mm. Now, blood from the left side of the Gorgon would kill you, as Chiron will find out later. But the blood from the right side would cure anyone. Wow. So, hopefully, Asclepius had a good labeling system. Yes. You know, it's like, <laughs> now, is that the Gorgon's right... <laughs> <laughs> I don't. Yeah. 
It's like diffusing a bomb. Like white yeah. and right, red. I can never. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so, so ho- hopefully he figured that out uh, yeah. at some point. Now, so he's he's at the height of his abilities now, still a demigod, mm-hmm. and he employs this raising the recently dead herb, maybe four or five more times, uh, depending on the myths that you believe, and eventually, an Athenian prince named Hippolytus uh, is killed, and he uses it on Hippolytus as a favor to Artemis. Yes. Yes, it, 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 may, it may come up in the next half. It just may. So uh, he does, but according to Ovid, Clotho, who's a member of the Moray, the Fates, mm-hmm. is upset by this. Hades is also upset. Uh, you know, for Clotho respinning someone's fate, that's that's a lot of extra work. Yeah. <laughs> and if you remember their episode, episode five, they're very busy. Yes. So she's not happy. Full play. Hades yeah. just. He's already down in, in, in hell. So he doesn't yeah. want to be disrespected any further. Right, right. Uh, so Zeus responds in a Zeus-like fashion, mm-hmm. and he kills Asclepius with a lightning bolt. Yeah, yeah. So after all that work to, to bring him back, just Zeus undoes it. Yeah. No, he kills Asclepius. So, so oh, yes. yeah. So this, in turn, of course, doesn't go over well with his father, Apollo. No, no. Apollo raises a ruckus kills a couple of cyclopes who make the lightning bolts because mm. he can't target Zeus. Um, and then Ovid writes in, in his poem, The Fasti, Zeus, fearing the example set, directed his lightning at Asclepius, who employed the power of too great an art. Apollo, you complained, but now Asclepius is a god. Be reconciled to your father. He did for you what he forbids to others. Mm. So... The ruckus by Apollo pays off. Yep. Uh, and Asclepius is made a god. Maybe a little bit of warning. Leave the dead where they are. Yeah. Just just lesson learned. Yeah. He, heal heal them while they're alive. So, a couple different versions of this myth, uh, which I will discuss in the rounds a little bit. But one of the common subtexts here is that Asclepius raising the dead is just too powerful. Right. To leave as a mortal. Too so great of an art. Yes. He's either got to be killed or made a god, and so he's. They kind of do both. Yeah. Uh, um, and now, now he's a god. So, I haven't mentioned his his, you know, personal life. The only thing that we've got from that is that he was married to a woman named Epinoe, and they had nine children. Wow. Three boys and six girls. The boys became doctors, uh, and the girls all became goddesses, including uh, the youngest, who is the goddess Hygieia, the goddess of health uh who also became fairly popular in uh ancient greece so i guess the girls were born post apotheosis after after being god so right 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 carries over after that yeah and then uh you get one more story about asclepius after he is definitively a god and this is via ovid again uh from his metamorphosis so at some point there's this terrible plague uh, going on in Rome. And I'll quote from Ovid here. It says, Plague tainted the air of Latium, and the people's bodies were ravaged by disease, pallid and bloodless. When they saw that their efforts were useless and medical skill was useless, wearied with funeral rites, they sought help from the heavens. Which, you know, 
Sounds a little familiar. I, very much so. Yeah, yeah a little but, tingle hearing that. Yeah, yeah. But the Romans, without access to podcasting technology, right, <laughs> have to send a mission to Delphi. Yeah. So uh, to ask Apollo what to do. Right. But then when they get to Delphi, the Oracle tells them, actually, you've gone a little too far. Should have taken a little bit of a left and gone mm. up to Epidaurus, which is the home of Apollo's son, Sclepius's main temple. And ask him for help. So they backtrack a little bit, uh, get up to Epidaurus. And the authorities in Epidaurus are split over whether to let the Romans open up an Asclepius Temple franchise. Mm. You know, some of them are for it. Of course, we have to do this. They're in trouble. Others, you know, I assume kind of the Chamber of Commerce types, they're opposed. (laughs) You know, they don't need the competition. That's right. Just bonded a new convention center, got big plants, the waterfront. So, you know, they debate this for a while. Evening goes on. There's no decision. So they break. So, well, we'll pick this up in the morning, try mm-hmm. to figure out what to do. But then overnight, Asclepius appears to the Romans in their dream and, and tells them that he's going to come back to Rome with them, no matter what the, the, the authorities des- decide. And to seal it, he will appear before them as a snake in the temple the next day. So the next day, the Epidaurans start debating. Then Asclepius makes his appearance in the shape of a snake. Mm. And from Ovid, he says, They had hardly ceased speaking when the golden god in the likeness of a serpent and with a tall crest gave out a hiss as a harbinger of his presence. And by his coming, rocked the statue, the doors, the marble pavement, the gilded roof. Then he stopped in the middle of the temple, raising himself chest high, and gazed around with flashing eyes of fire. So there's a bit of a panic in the temple, and they see this giant serpent come in. Sure. At which, you know, they're actually, we're often snakes roaming around, but these are kind of normal size right, snakes. Regular size. Yeah, not, not and, giant. And not, not of this size. So, right. But the priests... That recognize immediately. Oh no, this is the god. Yeah. Uh, it's it's cool. It's cool. Uh, <laughs> and the Romans load the giant serpent Asclepius onto a boat. So the boat groans under the weight of the god. Uh, Ovid tells us so, and they take him back to Rome. So he's a god, but you know he still needs a ride. Sure. Yeah. I mean, you got to point A to point B, no matter who you are. Yeah, he's, I'm a giant serpent, but I'm not not a flying one apparently. <laughs> so they can't take him back to Rome. Uh, Snake Asclepius kind of looks around and picks out an island in the middle of the Tiber River uh, to be his new home. Sacrifice is made to him, and the plague is ended, and then they build a temple to Asclepius on the island in the middle of the Tiber. Yeah. And so that is the story of Asclepius, son of Apollo, man turned to God, God of healing, and candidate for the Golden Apple. I like the fact that he really committed to the snake part. Yeah, he just—it seemed, seemed like he's like, "I'm going to do this as a little little dream symbol." And, and once he kind of got into the dreams, he's like, "This feels pretty good. I'm going to stick to this." Yeah. Well, I think if he if he'd shown up as just you know he's pictured in the ancient world as kind of a buff old man, uh, but if he just showed up as like a old man, you know, maybe wouldn't have had the the weight, the authority of just being a giant serpent. But he did seem to enjoy that. He needed the, the sort of theatrical entrance. And then yeah. once he got that, he just like, you know, let's, let's stick with it. You know, <laughs> he's he got committed. a boat. 
Yeah, let's keep to it. So I, I guess the, at some point we'd want to know, does he does he do the healing on that island still in giant snake form? But at some point, does he say, all right, guys, I'm just I'm going to go full doctor now. And <laughs> yeah, like that. I, that's unclear. Unclear. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Ovid does not follow up on that. So. No, <laughs> let's save that for the save that for the sequel. Yeah. <laughs> Excellent. Well, very good. Very good. A lot of learned uh, learned lessons there. I do have a vague recollection of uh, of Zeus having some issues uh, with with the good doctor, but I, yeah. I'm glad that that story turned out the way it did. And uh, yeah, some pretty impressive skills there. Yeah. So uh, decent candidate. So we'll, we'll I would say so. Take it well, let's go from the sublime to the ridiculous because <laughs> uh, straight from from healing uh, to the opposite of that, to uh, the goddess of love, Aphrodite, right after we take this quick break. All right. We're back with part two, moving to Aphrodite. And we talked about it up front, Andrew. We like to keep it family friendly. Yes. When we can on God versus God, we try to have good, clean fun. Even when our contestants uh, behave in a somewhat outlandish manner, which is virtually every, <laughs> which is every single episode, yes. So this is this is something of a challenge uh, with with the goddess of love, uh, because there are some randy stories. I will give it my all as I pledge to upfront, uh, and while the language I pledge will remain, you know, network television friendly, <laughs> I guess listeners should be warned there are some what do you call adult themes, uh, suggestive situations. So I, I, I feel obliged to say, yes, listener discretion advised. All right. So, so as you said, yes, Humdinger, uh, one of the 12 Olympians, another major figure, Aphrodite, best and most simply known as the goddess of love. But because love is such a many splendid thing, she's also associated with a wide range of concepts surrounding love, beauty, pleasure, procreation. Uh, You'll recall way back in episode two when we talked about her son, Cupid, we talked about the two kind of primary flavors of love. You've got passion on one yep. side, which is kind of eager interest leading to, to something positive. And then you've got lust, which is wanting something, even if you already have it. Um, Aphrodite is very versatile in that she represents the full spectrum, both sides of, of, of the love spectrum. Her stories do encompass plenty of both. I will say the mm-hmm. best of her stories do, do tend to lean on the lustier side. Um, and at once she is both the embodiment of the heart but also the patron goddess of prostitutes. So okay. she oversees sort of both the emotional and the commercial side of the enterprise all at once. Pretty big job, but she's cut out for it. Uh, the visual of Aphrodite is pretty familiar to us. She is the epitome of beauty, the female beauty, and as such rarely seen with, with clothing of any kind. Now, every now and then she's got a little bit of modesty. She'll cover up a sensitive area with an arm, a little bit of long hair, but more often than not, she just lets it rip, fully unclothed. And when you're the most beautiful creature alive, you know, smoke them if you got them. Why not? <laughs> Let it out. Uh, the Roman equivalent, of course, of Aphrodite, as we said in episode two, is Venus. But because the fates have assigned me Aphrodite, uh, we're going to go with the Greco in this segment rather yep. than the Roman. So Aphrodite it is. But the two are essentially one. So to the origin story, uh, fans of episode four are going to recall that uh, the backstory of Hades, the god of the underworld, significant flashback sequence in which Uranus, of course, the primordial, primordial god of the sky, is castrated by his son Cronus, after which the father's severed genitals are cast into the sea. Now, by most accounts, that event caused a splash. There was some sea foam that rose up, right. and Aphrodite emerged from the foam, fully formed, adult, beautiful. And that's the iconic image of her birth 
You've got it in Botticelli's famous painting, The Birth of Venus, late 1400s. There she is. She's rising from the sea on a giant half shell. Technically, I think it's a scallop, but it's it's oversized, very big. Right. So unless yep. they had really huge seafood towers back then, probably a little, little exaggerated. Um, now, Aphrodite's place on most of the mythological family trees, of course, instead of a mother and a father, feature the phrase Uranus's genitals which for me still amuses the 12-year-old version of me to know it. Yes. No doubt. Uh, but in revisiting that story for, for this installment, I learned that there is, in fact, a an alternate account. So if we go to the Iliad, Homer actually has Aphrodite as the daughter of Zeus and Dion, an ancient goddess and Titaness. And there are some other accounts at the time that agree with this. So they make it clear that Dion, of course, was not one of Zeus's wives, but more of an extracurricular relationship, not an official yeah. spouse, which, of course very much on brand with Zeus's character. Now, if you're Aphrodite and you get to pick one of these, I think in terms of your own lineage, you really want the traditional two-parent arrangement. That feels much better <laughs> than being from the, the seafoam of, of discarded genitals. Certainly a better scenario for family photos, you know, parent-teacher <laughs> conferences and the like. But later uh, in his symposium, Plato suggests that these two origin stories actually belong to separate entities. And in fact, there are two Aphrodites and he calls them Aphrodite Oronea, who is the sort of transcendent, heavily, heavenly version of, of the okay. goddess, and Aphrodite Pandemos, who is the more common, more down-to-earth, the Aphrodite of the people. So this could explain why she carries such a wide range of associations. There's actually sort of two, two sides to her, according to Plato. Uh, but an interesting additional footnote to the origin story that I did not know. So if we, to we go to the city of Amathus, which is in Cyprus, uh, those folks worshipped instead a male version of Aphrodite who was known okay. fittingly as Aphroditus. Now, the male version, unsurprisingly, very beautiful, also depicted with the figure and the dress of a woman, but two important differences. First, had a beard. Right. Second, he was shown lifting his dress to reveal a tumescent phallus. Now, at the time, this gesture was said to bestow good luck on all who looked at it. Uh, but as you can imagine, over time, the popularity of this male version began to fade. It was replaced by the the Aphrodite that we know and love. Yeah. And don't need the beard. Don't need the the flashing for good luck. Let's let's <laughs> stick to the original version, and and that's what we get. So, a little good run uh, in Cyprus, but did not last long. All right. Yeah. So, we don't have much of a story of any kind of Aphrodite as a young person. By most accounts, she was born as a fully nubile, desirable adult out of the right. sea. Uh, as you mentioned, Andrew, in episode three on Vulcan, uh, she was originally married to the god of fire, Hephaestus, the, in the Greek version, yep. but had a torrid affair during that marriage with Ares, the god of war. Now, you will also recall that Helios, the sun god who sees all, uh, witnesses Aphrodite and Ares getting together uh, in the marital bed. Uh, Helios then warns Hephaestus, the husband who fashions the net of gold, which traps the couple the next time that they rendezvous it's a crafty move on Hephaestus's yep. part but he makes a kind of a tragic mistake as you alluded to back then he brings all the gods into the bedchamber when they're caught to laugh right. for some reason at his wife and her lover for getting caught and he gets the opposite effect of what he wants he doesn't get the sympathy you've got Apollo Hermes and Poseidon all end back end up having sympathy for Ares for being embarrassed <laughs> right. and they essentially pay to let him get his freedom. They essentially bail him out. So yep. Hephaestus is already the cuckold and he's then humiliated further for his hubris in a, a double play of shame. Uh, so that marriage didn't last long for Aphrodite. Yep. 
an interesting additional detail this story about some accounts we kind of we talked about it in your mars episode mars been aries being equivalent in this version, Aries is actually trying not to get caught. It seemed like they weren't trying very hard in the right. version we know. But in fact, Aries, by some accounts, hired a young soldier, you know, a fellow named Electrion, to stand guard at the door of, of Hephaestus and Aphrodite's place to warn him if Helios is about to arrive. So sends the guard to the Festus. door. Correct. Correct. Yes. Yeah. Sends the guard to the door uh, looking for Helios. Electrion falls asleep. And of course... Ares is busted with Aphrodite. Helios comes up as he does every morning. And Ares, in his rage at getting caught, turns Electrion into a rooster, who, of course, is then destined to crow every morning uh-huh. when the sun is about to appear. So that is where we get roosters. That is our scientific biology <laughs> lesson yes. of, of the installment. From a uh, lazy, uh, lazy watchman. That's right. So that's where the rooster comes from. So Aphrodite and Hephaestus get divorced in the wake of this infidelity. But she and Ares kind of remain pretty close throughout the years. They're kind of consorts. They end up going to weddings together. They're riding the same chariot. Uh, considering her her voracious appetites, uh, Aphrodite's, they're, they're likely what we call friends with benefits. But they kind of retain this sort of ongoing affair throughout the years. Now, Aphrodite is also often accompanied by Cupid, Eros in the yep. Greek tradition. But Cupid, is, of course, the god of lust and sexual desire. We discussed him at length in episode two, but she's also got a, a nice entourage around her, a good good number of attendants that surround her at all times. She's got the three charities, Splendor, Good Cheer, and Abundance. She's got another set of attendants called the Hours. You've got Good Order, Justice, and Peace. So always kind of traveling with with a lot of a yeah. lot of fun people. Uh, she had many children, which you would expect from right. the, the uh, goddess of procreation. It stands to reason both in terms of her role and her predilection for for getting busy. Um, maybe the most notable, besides Cupid, is the fertility god Priapus. Now, different accounts of Priapus's father could have been Hermes, maybe even Zeus. In fact, for our purposes, let's say it's Zeus, because if it is, you know what that means. It's an occasion for our favorite guest star to come back, <laughs> the most jealousy-stricken sister-wife, good old Hera. So right. he's fooling around, uh, and Aphrodite is... Uh, is pregnant with, with who's going to be Priapus. Hera's upset that Zeus has been fooling around. So she puts an evil potion on Aphrodite's midsection while she's asleep in the interest of ensuring that her child, once it is born, will come out hideous. Again, very Hera-like move. Yeah. Sure enough, Aphrodite's baby is born. Priapus arrives. And yes, sure enough, he is born with three prominent and indeed hideous features coming straight out of the womb. First, it's got a pot belly, which you don't expect from a newborn. Just comes out with already with a nice beer belly. Second, huge tongue, which had to have been very frightening. But third, and you guessed it, yeah. massive, permanently engorged male organ. Now, it's worth a quick Google image search on the name <laughs> Priapus. Uh, I got to warn you, the images are not going to be family friendly, even though they're, they're thousands of years old. But they do paint a picture of what poor little guy went through all the time. Right. Uh, the burden that he must have had with that uh, that third hideous trait. Um, as we discussed in the first half, um, the practice of exposure comes up, seeing yep. this, this grotesque child. So Aphrodite abandons the undesirable infant in the woods. But similar to one of our uh, scenarios up front, right. a herdsman comes by, rescues baby Priapus, and raises him, and discovers over time as a young man that his comically large endowment in its permanent state of arousal can somehow 
be used to help plants grow. Who knew? So there's there's a plus side to this terrible condition. Now, bonus points to all listeners uh, who now realize the son of Aphrodite, this namesake, is the namesake of the medical condition priapism, which is why certain pharmaceutical ads instruct you to call your doctor after four hours of his condition. And that, that is true. Uh, now, I admit, I, I like the fact that the conclusion that poor Priapus was ultimately able to help the herdsmen, help the plants grow, right. even though he has this unfortunate condition. I hesitate to use the term happy ending, however, because that's, that seems... That seems yeah. But it's a nice finish. We'll put it that way. <laughs> now, we've also heard the story about the Judgment of Paris. Of course, Aphrodite competes with Hera and Athena for the golden apple about who is the fairest of them all. Right. Um, covered that pretty well, I think, in episode six from the perspective of Athena. But as a reminder, Aphrodite emerges as the winner of the apple. Her two competitors are infuriated. The Trojan War begins as a result. But another footnote to this story. So in artistic depictions of that event from the time, from shortly after the event, Aphrodite is making her case for the golden apple in the nude, as was her preference, where Hera and Athena appear fully clothed. Now, this may have been something of, now, it's different in the Renaissance, a little bit later than they're all naked, but those early accounts, I choose to believe them, because if if anything, it teaches you, if you're really attractive and you're in a competitive situation, nudity is always your best competitive (laughs) weapon. She knew that, and that's why Aphrodite right. won. I assume you, you speak from experience. I speak from no experience. I've, I've, I speak from, from an observer experience, sadly. Uh, but yes, it did work for Aphrodite. Uh, she won the Golden Apple. Didn't go so well after that for a long time, but it was enough to put her over the edge. Right. Now, one thing we have not talked about is the tale of Aphrodite and Adonis. And Adonis really has not made a whole lot of appearances uh, on our program I think this is probably the core of his story. Uh, it shows some of, of Aphrodite's complicated character. As as a lot of these stories do, it begins with a tale of hubris. So uh, we go to a princess named Myrrha, who is a, the daughter of King Cyrus of Cyprus. Now, the princess Myrrha is quite attractive, but her mother, unfortunately, makes a fatal mistake. She brags that her daughter is more <sighs> beautiful than Aphrodite herself. We've heard this before. Yeah, yeah. Of course, Aphrodite doesn't like that one bit. She is the goddess of beauty. These are these are mere mortals. Uh, so she wants to immediately avenge this act of hubris. So Aphrodite puts a curse on the princess Myrrha. And that curse is for her to have insatiable lust for her own father, the king. She's stricken by that. That's, yeah. that's Aphrodite's curse. Myrrha follows through. She's blinded by the lust. She seduces her father, gets pregnant as a result, and is driven out of the kingdom in shame. And as further punishment, she's transformed into a myrrh tree. Now, myrrh, of course, will one day be paired with frankincense and gold in a different yeah. story. That's many, many years later. <laughs> yeah, so yeah. this is where it all begins. So myrrh becomes myrrh. And despite the fact that she is now this kind of thorny tree, she still manages to give birth to the result uh, of oh, that. So that's after. It, well, it's just she's sort of a tree birth. Yeah, it's like, <laughs> it, it, many of these stories, a transformation happens. The pregnancy still finds a way out. Uh, so somehow this child emerges, and that child is Adonis. Now, shortly afterward, Aphrodite finds the baby, and maybe feeling a little guilty about the fact that that was a pretty intense way to curse somebody for the thing that her mother said. Right. So maybe she feels a little bad, but she goes back and encounters uh, the baby, encounters young Adonis, and it is love at first sight, and like a different kind of love. She's taken by baby Adonis immediately. And remember, Aphrodite's had lots of lovers, in kind of lusty fashion, but she's never felt this way before. 
she views Adonis for the first time. So she wants to take care of him, takes baby Adonis down to the underworld to be essentially fostered by Persephone, the queen of the underworld. Okay. Now, they also get along very well. Adonis grows up, and once he's grown up a little bit, Aphrodite returns to visit him and sees that flutter come back, feels it again, sees the young man has become incredibly handsome as he's aged. Aphrodite, in fact, is so taken with him, she kind of wants to take him back and keeps raising, keep raising him from here now that he is so attractive and, and, and so, so handsome in her eyes. Persephone is also very drawn to, to the young Adonis and not willing to let him go. So they're having a bit of a decision about who's going who's gonna to okay. get him. Yeah. As you'd expect, Zeus steps in uh, to be the moderator here to settle the dispute, the, to <laughs> resolve the question of which foster mother who's hot for Adonis gets to deserve more of his time, I guess, as he continues to be raised. So Zeus, in his methodical fashion, decrees that, all right, Adonis, you're going to get one third of the year with Aphrodite. You'll get one third with Persephone. And the last third is with whomever you choose. Now, it's Aphrodite we're talking about, the most beautiful creature there is. So Adonis chooses her okay. or the other third of the year. And on paper, you know, you'd think this couple, despite having a little strange beginning of being a sort of surrogate mother-lover relationship, <laughs> on paper, aesthetically, it's very promising. You've got two of the best-looking beings on Earth. I mean, think about it's sort of the equivalent of Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie back in the day, maybe Brad Pitt and Jennifer Aniston earlier than that. I mean, Brad Pitt and, and, <laughs> and his mailman, any, anybody. Uh, could probably fill that equation. But by all accounts, this was not just aesthetics. This was this was something deeper. This was at last for Aphrodite, the true love that she'd been longing for, more than that lusty affair situation she'd had in the past. And really, it's a whole different story. All she wants to do is please Adonis. And he's keen to the chase. They really get to know each other. Unlike her typical approach, they take their time and they really start to grow together. Um, sometimes she even leaves her sweet ride, which is a flying car driven by giant swans, uh, and goes with Adonis when he's on his hunting expeditions, which is his, his hobby as well. Yeah. Um, sometimes she even wears like a little huntress outfit to accompany him. And you know, she's not fond of clothing. Right. So this is, this is a big step for her. So they're really starting to deepen their relationship. They're having a great time. One day Aphrodite's elsewhere in the car. Adonis is out hunting and he tracks down this mighty wild boar. So he brings the beast to bay with the help of his hunting dogs. He throws his spear, doesn't get the boar full on, only wounds it. And the beast, mad with pain, rushes back at Adonis and gores him with his mighty tusks. Now Aphrodite, again, flying high above the earth in her swan car, but she hears her lover's groans of pain and she comes down to him, holds him in her arms, but it's too late. He bleeds to death while he's in Aphrodite's arms. And at Adonis's death to this day, to our conversation early, remains something of an unsolved mystery. Okay. Where did the boar come from? You know, there are a lot of people who had a motive to get rid of Adonis. So people were asking questions at the time. There was, you know, was it was it Artemis? Well, first of all, was it Ares? You know, that's right. the first cat if you're first candidate, that's her her regular wedding date guy. Was he jealous that all of a sudden Aphrodite's spending so much time with this young guy? Maybe he snaps into action. That's right. God of War. Yeah. But after that, in fact, to your point earlier, he then they, maybe it was Artemis, goddess of the hunt, had a beef with Aphrodite because of the situation with Hippolytus that had happened, who was a follower of Artemis's right. earlier. And so we've already pinned one murder on her. <laughs> well, yeah. So the, the show is young. <laughs> or, I mean, option three did Adonis just sort of cross the wrong boar at the wrong time? 
So we'll never know. It remains a cold case. Okay. All these years later. But Aphrodite's crushed. You know, she mourns Adonis's death in the most dramatic fashion. She causes flowers to grow everywhere his blood has spilled. She injures herself on a white rose bush and it becomes permanently stained red. As she even declares an annual festival on the anniversary of Adonis's death. And each year the river runs red with blood. The women in town lament his death loudly. They tear at their clothes, beat their breasts in a public display of grief. So tragic tale for Aphrodite after, after yeah. really finding this important layer of love, it ends so poorly. Um, I do feel it's important though, to talk about Aphrodite's darker side because, yeah. you know, love is going to give you a nice warm glow. Uh, there's a darker side. And like many of our contestants has a sort of serious anger streak. She's still got a temper despite that. So I'll give you three quick examples that kind of give you a sense of that, of that, that flash of temper. Uh, the first takes place in the Island of Lemnos. So yep. the women on Lemnos, for whatever reason, just refused to sacrifice to Aphrodite. She didn't like that. So she cursed all those women to stink terribly <laughs> so that their husbands would never be attracted to them. Now you would think that would work does not end well. All the husbands say, all right, you guys are a little stinky. So they end up just sleeping with their slave girls instead yeah. of the women of Lemnos. Well, the women aren't going to have that. So the women of Lemnos then murder the entire male population of the island in retaliation, along with the slave girls, just wipe them all out. And eventually, Jason and the Argonauts make their way. They show right. up. With Aphrodite's blessing, they then repopulate the island. The stink is lifted, and those women of Lemnos are learn never to disrespect Aphrodite again. Okay. And the island is populated again. All is well. And I assume everybody smells perfectly, perfectly <laughs> good after that. Uh, but a good a good example of rage. The second one, there's a competitive charioteer, a horse racer named Glaucus of Corinth, who very serious about his sport and refuses to let his prize horses mate because he feels the mating process is going to slow them down. It's going to be bad for racing. Now, Aphrodite, of course, is offended by this. She's the goddess of procreation. After all, mating yeah. is her jam. Even she for feels horses. a personal affront to this. So the next time Glaucus has a chariot race, she drives his horses mad mid-race. And they tear him apart right in the middle of the race and do not finish. So he is unable to win, lose, or draw because he is in pieces by the end of the race. Just because he didn't want to mate his horses. Pretty pretty significant anger streak. Yeah. The final tale that I'll tell of Aphrodite's anger, uh, poor young woman named Polyphonte, who chooses in her life to have a nice virginal existence alongside Artemis. It was a very respectable thing to right. do. Uh, but again, Aphrodite, of course, always favors marriage and children. That's her style. Polyphonte refuses. So Aphrodite comes back with a, a curse and says, oh, you're going to have children. And she she curses her to lust after a bear. So this happens. After which she does have children. There's these yeah. two offspring of the union, Agrius and Aureus, who end up being these kind of humanoid but bear-like uh, twins and cannibals. Yeah, okay. They call them the bear twins. Uh, they wait on the side of the road, and as people are coming by, attack them and eat them. Uh, before long, Zeus steps in, just right. says, this is not bad for business. We can't have this. <laughs> uh, he's annoyed by the cannibalism, as, as one would be, transforms the entire family then into various birds of ill omen, vultures, owls, woodpeckers, and so on. Okay. Not sure how that solves the problem. But, <laughs> but better to something. have a bunch of sort of you know birds of ill omen than it is to have these cannibal twins. So all three, you're seeing art, or you're seeing Aphrodite show certainly creative instances uh, of her anger, but certainly devastating to all those yeah. involved. 
Um, but I want to end on a, on a little happier tale, lest we get we get too dark. And that's the story of, of, of Pygmalion. It's a, it's a really short one. I think it's lovely. So Pygmalion is, is a very talented sculptor um, in Cyprus, very handsome. But he finds that the women he meets, he's so sickened by their immorality that he just, he signs okay. off. He's, he refuses to marry. It's too pure of heart. It's nobody good enough for him. So instead of pursuing the women of Cyprus, he begins to, to sculpt his masterwork. And he begins an ivory cult sculpture of Aphrodite. And the statue is so beautiful, he falls in love with it. In fact, he's so passionate for this statue, becomes so devoted to it, that Aphrodite herself takes notice and actually steps in and intervenes. She brings Pygmalion's statue of her to life, turns okay. the statue into a real woman representing her. The sculptor marries the girl that the statue becomes, and they even have a son named Paphos, who becomes the namesake of the capital of Cyprus to this day. Not much yeah. to the story beyond that. It's a quick yeah. one, but it's proof to me, if nothing else, that the ancient gods do pay attention to media created about them. <laughs> yes. And they may, in some instances, be willing to step into the creators of such media if they are sufficiently devoted to their craft. So this could, could bode well for the remainder yeah. of our season. There's just to know that gods are listening, and every now and then, when there's sufficient devotion in those craftsmen, right. they will step in and get involved. So... We have to step up our devotion game. That's right. This, you, this is as devoted as I get. This is a, <laughs> so so yeah. wrapping it up on Aphrodite, you know, certainly inspired a lot of mortals with her beauty, her personification of love, her own relationships, I think were rocky at best, uh, especially considering her insatiable appetites. You know, we know that that ongoing affair with Ares sort right. of more of a, more of a, of a casual thing. Adonis had the promise of something deeper, but of course he was mortal we had the situation with the boar. He was not long for the world. I think ultimately her pattern of, of cursing people with uncontrollable lust got a lot of people in trouble with their own yeah. family members, with kings, wild animals, a lot of collateral damage. But remember, at the beginning, Plato always suspected that there were two Aphrodites, the, the ethereal one and the other who's far more common. So if anything else, Aphrodite is a fine reminder that just as love takes many forms, you know, so do we. Some right. days... Our hearts become full. We fall for our soulmate. Other days, we curse people to lust after bears and have cannibal twin sons. We, we sure. all have our good days and bad days. And Aphrodite certainly did. did, too. Yeah. So that's Excellent. it for Aphrodite. Uh, a, a checkered character, uh, but certainly a fascinating one. So this is going to be a fascinating uh, rounds session. Yes, it's hard. It's very different skill sets, uh, different levels of character. It's, it's going to be, it will be fascinating. I'm on the edge of my seat. Uh with the right. untold, the unsolved murders and a real nail-biting matchup. I want to hear this last segment. All right, stick around. Stick around back after the break. All right, we are back to the rounds session of the show where we have five rounds that will determine who's going to be the winner of the golden apple for this episode. And our first round is Immortal Combat. And this is, again, a physical confrontation right. uh, between the two gods. So, again, this is not exactly a clash of the ages in terms of combat <laughs> skills. No, no. Uh, but I will go through it and see, see how it turns out. So no. the main weapon uh, for Asclepius is his rod or, or staff. Right. Um, you know, 
just has to remember to get the snake off of it first before he sw- <laughs> starts swinging it around. Yes. Um, but, you know, it's a good solid piece of wood, so that's something. I mean, that the, the snake attached could make it a formidable weapon even more, in a way. Yeah. Just, Nobody yeah. likes snakes. Yeah, yeah, if you have somebody who's afraid of snakes, that, that, that helps you out that much more. So yes. he also has the Gorgon blood uh, right, to deal right. with. Uh, not sure if that left side works on gods, but still, you know, it's pleasant. Yeah. <laughs> nobody, it's a nobody decent wants. weapon, yeah. A little Gorgon blood on him. Um, mm-hmm. You know, he does a little hunting, so he's got some, some skills, mm-hmm. we presume. Um, and then probably his biggest weapon actually is, you know, Turning into a giant snake. That's what I was going to say. I mean, that's that's really the secret weapon. That's, that's, that's uh, if the you can do that, yeah, that's, yeah. that's impressive. Um, that said, you know, there really are no instances of him fighting anybody uh, yeah. that, that we get uh, stories about, and his whole deal is healing. Yes. Uh, uh, so I feel like you know he bashes you in the head with a stick, and then he's going to feel obligated right <laughs> after to. Try and patch you up. So yeah, was he before the Hippocratic Oath? Was that predating him? So he's not beholden to to do no harm. Or what was the timeline so, there? Uh, so Hippo, Hippocrates, I believe his name, yes. was a follower of Asclepius, okay. and he actually worked at an Asclepian temple. And, so one formed, of the franchises. Yeah. yeah so he he was okay. he was a franchisee. Um, so I you know, I think that it was it that was inspired by Asclepius. So he maybe was not formally beholden to it, but sure. It, that that is kind of in in his blood. So, yeah. you know, you do have to question his willingness to fight uh, in this one. That's that's yeah. going to hold him back. So, uh, what do you have on uh, Aphrodite for this? Well, again, a, a limited uh, weaponry. I think lust, the, the curse of lust, seems to be her most primary weapon. Whether it's causing others to to lust for her, for each other, for their own fathers, bears, right. whatever that is. Um, She's got these anger issues. She's not afraid to use that weapon, clearly. Yeah, yeah. Certainly um, if she's angered, she's Yeah, and it could gonna be, engage. Yeah. And, and so it's not a sort of traditional combat weapon, but it is clearly pretty maddening and, and has good results. Um her big entourage, you know, seems like they're a good time to hang out with, but in hand to hand combat, not a whole lot of help. You know, you're right. not gonna get much value from being surrounded by splendor, good cheer, <laughs> and abundance. Uh so they're not, we're not gonna pitch in a whole lot. Theoretically, if Plato's right and there are two Aphrodites, um, maybe they can fight together. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. sure how that works. Um, if if even then, if you loop in the sort of multiverse male variant of Aphroditus, the, the male version, he jumps in with his dress right. and the beard and constantly flashing the enemy. Um, that could be pretty formidable. But I think the you know, no tales of real warrior exploits, no killing of a giant. But right. I think, in my view, the willingness to use that powerful weapon of lust probably overtakes what Asclepius can bring to the table, even if Asclepius is a giant snake, because that snake right. will just lust after something, something. <laughs> yeah, who knows what? So I, I do think I, I think I give yeah. uh, Aphrodite the edge on this one. No, I, I, I think I do. I, I just, it, I just don't think that engaging in uh, physical harm of, of another being for the sake of a podcast <laughs> <laughs> well, not too. Yes. Is, is in it. Oh, I, I'm gonna agree with you. I think uh, maybe a little bit by default, but she she's got some skills in there, and she certainly has has some anger. Uh, so yeah, uh, yeah, I'm gonna give this to Aphrodite as well. So great. Yep, we're in agreement. Very good. All right, and then we go on to curriculum deity, and this is again who has that it factor. Which god would you rather be? Uh, which one would you rather follow? Uh, I'll let you start this one off. Yeah. So. 
in terms of who I'd rather be, I mean, who would want to be the most beautiful creature alive? You know, you can get any any lover you desire. You got a killer entourage. You've got Cupid hanging out, the sun, who's always a good time. Yep. Uh, seems like a pretty good life. You know, I could do without the bouts of anger. I could do without the sort of leaving of, of trails of collateral damage. That doesn't seem very fun. Uh, you don't hear much about sort of her way of living apart from the the the, the floating car carried by swans, which is that's pretty cool. So <laughs> score some points there. Yeah. Um, you know, there is a sense that you go through life in in uh, in a sense of people being reverent around you because you are so beautiful. But at the same time, people are very they get jealous, they get turned off and you you, you run into lots of of conflict because of that. So right. um, bit of a mixed bag on being in terms of of following. So similar to what we talked about in episode nine with Poseidon, Aphrodite is still to this day being worshipped. So she is you know, still a major deity in the neo-pagan religions. We've got the Church yep. of Aphrodite is still active, Wicca, uh, the Hellenic religion I mentioned last time. Um, I might have wanted to follow her back then, but only if I really was interested in dabbling in prostitution, because that <laughs> part of her was a huge part of the cult. Okay. Uh, that was really, that was her purview. Uh, as I mentioned, she was, to her credit, though, she was the patron goddess of all varieties of prostitutes. So you had your kind of high and low prostitutes at the time. So the lower ones were called the porne. Interesting choice of words. Um, okay. These were the cheaper kind of street prostitutes. They were usually owned by by wealthy pimps. But then you had the hetaire, who were the expensive, well-educated, sort of self-employed types. And they would do very well for themselves. So the city of Corinth was known, it had a reputation for having the most of this second kind, the high-end kind in the world, the most skilled, the most expensive, and the most successful. So ultimately, Aphrodite had a major temple there as sort of a tribute to how what blessings uh, these women had in, okay. in their occupation. So it was full within the temple of dedications made by many of her successful courtesans. So essentially, within the temple, there are all these, these are the cross between sort of a thank you note to the boss and right. like a positive employer review on Glassdoor. Like this is, this is a great place to work. Uh, I don't have as much of an interest in that in real life, but right. uh, I was impressed at how this was, she was really a, a, a very motivating factor to the success of a lot of women as sex okay. workers at that time. So, um, you know, would There's I be a interested in that? certain amount of empowerment to that, yeah. Exactly, exactly. And uh, and that remains to this day. So in some of those uh, those sort of neo-pagan traditions that is, they're peopled by by a lot of women who okay. who, who take that as, as self empowerment. So, yeah, I think a, a bit of a mixed bag there. Seems like an interesting type of worship to go along with, but uh, depends on, on on which part of that spectrum you fall on, I suppose. Right, right. Um, so uh, in terms of Asclepius, uh, obviously he's got his medical practice, which yep. you know is, is pretty rewarding. He's thriving. Yeah, he's inventing new treatments mm -hmm. all the time. So that that seems interesting thing to do. Uh, seemed to have a, a decent family life, at least he, nine children. So it was successful, at least yeah. in that manner. Very fecund. Uh, yeah. It doesn't have a, an extensive uh, retinue outside of the family, but I guess you got nine kids, so you don't need much else. Other than you that. make your own entourage, right? Yeah. yeah. So just the family. Um, didn't have a, a, any sort of flying chariot. He had to hitch a ride. Yeah, you know, they so never never quite got that worked out. I think that's the <laughs> kind of a next level uh, of godhood right. that didn't yeah. uh, didn't achieve. Um, there were a group of doctors who referred to themselves as the Asclepiads, hmm. and they claimed to be uh, descend uh, descended from him and uh, follow him. You know, in terms of worship, uh, there was that big temple in Epidaurus, and that was the center of his worship, um, and 
that temple was pretty interesting because it had it was a large temple, and again, it was sort of a working facility, much like you're talking about. But this mm-hmm. in this uh, sense, it was a hospital. Okay, so it was a temple and an actual hospital, mm-hmm. and then it also had a large theater uh, attached wow. to it. And the theater, by the way, uh, has been cleaned up and still has festivals that go on to this day. Wow. Um, it sounded year. like kind of a mall entertainment center kind of prototype. Yeah, it, it's, yeah That's to impressive. come for the whole day, go to the hospital, see a show. <laughs> you know, uh, I'm sure I'm sure there were stalls for, for, for food, dinner. Yeah. Um, you know, and additional temples of Asclepians, they, they were known as Asclepions. Mm. And uh, there were about 300 or so ruins of Asclepions have been documented in Greece. Uh, and we... Ep- we referenced these in episode four, as you may recall, uh, with Morpheus because uh, dream therapy was part of that's right uh, of uh, what they did there. Yeah, and uh, they have dream and sleep and uh, dream interpretation, a little bit of a cleanse. That's right. Those were kind of like spa-like. Uh, yeah, the spa treatments. Very appealing. Those yeah. those were actually Asclepians. The the, the, oh. the uh, dream Oneries were involved in it and they had statues around but it he was running the show nice um you know in, in addition uh people would l- leave little votive clay sculptures of whatever body part that they needed to be he- healed mm. uh, or had been healed so they have little clay intestines a little clay mm. ear you know <laughs> or whatever it was uh yeah. it's those have been found all over all right so um yeah that, that's it's interesting it's interesting they both had kind of working temples Sure. In in, the, in their craft. <laughs> different types of work, but uh, yes, different types in, of people, in, yeah. In, in, in their craft. So, um, yeah, for me, I, th- I think I'm going to go with uh, Sclepius on this one. Doesn't have the anger issues. Uh, uh, you know, the, the worship is maybe something I can feel a little more comfortable with. So. Yes, I would agree. Uh, same boat for me. I, I think uh, you seem to have a pretty satisfactory life, successful business, good family. A lot more stability, you know. There's, yep. there's, there's a lot to like about uh, about that that life story. Certainly, with not without its drama, right? Um, yeah. But Getting I feel like lightning, not great. Yeah, not not great. But he ended well. It came back. Yeah. Uh, but it, yeah, I think in in there's so much, so much just chaos in in the life of Aphrodite, right? Uh, that I think I wouldn't want that. So yeah, right. good and doctor then, gets my vote as well. You know, and in the Mars episode, at least from that that standpoint, is that you know it was sort of laid out that they had started off sort of in in love and they had planned to marry and, and uh, Hephaestus uh, stepped in. Right. And so it, you know, kind of cooled it. And then it turned into this, you know, more sad arrangement. Or, that's right. So, yeah. You know, so that, that definitely. Uh, I think uh, so that's uh, two for Sleepy. So we're tied up going into round three, edge of All the right. seat stuff. Yes, indeed. Uh, and this is good God. So, Interesting one here. Uh, Sleepius is, is mostly a beneficial force. Uh, and, of course, most of the stories we have about him are pre-godhood when he's still a hero. Mm-hmm. Um, so in that case, the effects are relatively small, but they are, you know, one patient at a time. Uh, he's working hard, trying to heal people. And, you know, we, we also learn that he keeps, keeps up the job after deification. Right. Uh, only in snake form now prim- primarily but didn't uh, but, have to do it i mean he probably could have easily retired no no, no. so uh there were you know there was one case so when we talked about uh the raising the dead 
Uh, there were sometimes some rumors, Knox, that he was actually he was doing that for money. Oh. There was a greed element involved, or or simply to show off in a little bit of a, a hubristic mm-hmm. uh, way. But um, you know, taking money to to raise the dead. Hey, victimless <laughs> crime, right? If it's, yeah. You're providing a valuable service. Yeah, the, say, mar- yeah. the market will bear it. Right, exactly. <laughs> There's a market for that for sure. Uh, yeah. So uh, you know, I I I give him a pass on that one. Uh, stays with one wife, as far as we know, which is yeah. a rarity. Uh, <laughs> in what we've got to deal with here. Um, you know, and uh, really no stories of, of wrath or him doing uh, a lot of harm. So I think maybe the scale of, of his benefits is maybe the only question. But yeah. he does stop that uh, plague in Rome. Yeah. That ain't nothing. Good. There's yeah, some scale as, as the giant snake doctor. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Uh, that's a pretty stark story. In the case of, of Aphrodite, you know, even though she's associated with, with love and beauty, the character is not great. You know, it's yeah. full of infidelity, curses, double crosses. There's also just a really strange insecurity. You know, I think we talked in episode two about Cupid and she made him take revenge on Psyche because Psyche, you know, was said to be more beautiful than Aphrodite. Right. We heard the same story in a different realm with, with Myrrh in this one. Just so she may have had lovely porcelain skin, but it was very, she was very thin skinned. Right. And a lot got to her. Um, but, you know, she had that sort of entitlement of, of, of very attractive people, I guess. Although, <laughs> you know, a lot, a lot of these stories, uh, when a lot of uh, particularly the females get in trouble in, in these mythological stories, they tend to just run to their dad to fix it. Um, can't really do that when your right. dad is the severed genitals of Uranus. So <laughs> that's a problem. Yeah. Uh, so she's got to be independent there. On the plus side, um, you know, as we mentioned, she watches out for for her sex workers at all different parts of the spectrum, and she's kind enough to make P- Pygmalion that statue into a girl and make him happy. So, yeah, pretty small scale, I'd say uh, that latter right. one. But you know, there there's there is good with the bad. But I think on the whole, um, character pretty suspect across the right. board and, and, you know, and, and less it, admirable. In the Trojan War story, you know, obviously uh, Paris rightfully gets a lot of scorn. Uh, some to Helen, maybe less rightfully, but also. You know, all three of the goddesses who are trying to bribe him, yeah. and and particularly uh, her, who uh, Aphrodite, whose bribe ends up setting off the the, the whole, you know, so so that she could get a different uh, golden apple. So that's right. <laughs> <laughs> so it's gonna it's gonna co- might cost her in trying to get this particular. I think it just one. might. Yeah, the stakes were very high in that one. It turned out. So yeah, yeah I think uh, I think the good doctor gets my vote on this one as well. I I, I think that's correct uh, for for me also. Uh, so uh, it's two to one, Asclepius. Mm-hmm. And that brings us to uh, round four, which is uh, the iconography round. And this is about the legacy of the deity. Yes. And I'll let you take this one first. So pretty good one here. And this is where you have the advantage of the, both the sort of Roman side of Venus and the Aphrodite and the Greek side. And we mentioned the birth of Venus, the Botticelli image among our most famous with her giant scallop surfboard. Uh, we didn't mention the Venus de Milo, which of course, probably one of the best known right. statues in history, picture of beauty, give or take the the noticeable <laughs> lack of arms. Yeah. Um, although fun fact. So it is referred to popularly as the Venus de Milo. Venus, of course, the Roman version, but it yeah. is in fact an ancient Greek statue. Uh-huh. So the purists among us, like myself, only refer to it as the Aphrodite de Milos. <laughs> It deserves to have the Greek name. It is a Greek statue, but still very well-known, iconic in the art world. On the Venus side, a lot of great connotations. Of course, you get a planet, 
at a highly accomplished professional tennis player. You get a plant that eats flies. You get a great Bananarama song from the 80s. <laughs> Um, on the Aphrodite side, and I did not know this until recently, you get a day of the week. So Friday actually comes from Aphrodite in in the in the Greek language. Not just a day of the week, but you know, for many people, their favorite. Yes. So score some points. Thank there. the goddess. It's Friday. That's right. There you go. Bumper stickers practically print themselves. <laughs> uh, in terms of popular culture, you know, some kind of forgettable softcore kind of movies from the 60s and 70s kind of made their way through. Nothing really with a lot of cultural stickiness. Um, of course, Mighty Aphrodite. Yeah. Uh, Woody Allen, sort of a lower tier Woody Allen movie from 95. Somehow got an Oscar for Mira Sorvino, we'll recall. I, I found it pretty forgettable. Um, right. It did, though, feature, you may, I don't know if you remember seeing it, it featured a Greek chorus that showed oh, up yeah, yeah. between scenes and sort of kept you up in the action led by the great F. Murray Abraham. So those of us who are fans of ancient Greece for a contemporary set film, that was a nice little touch. Yeah. Um, surprisingly though, even though, as we heard earlier, Aphrodite has a story with Adonis about being a foster parent who becomes problematically involved with an adopted child. Somehow Woody Allen didn't touch that. <laughs> didn't, didn't make that part of the story. So maybe too close to home. Who's to yeah. say, <laughs> um, all that said, Aphrodite never really took off as, as a name for girls, um, probably because it means born from sea foam. And so <laughs> where, what are you gonna, where are you going to go with that? No. So, I mean, a pretty wide-ranging, pretty right. impressive uh, sort of cultural legacy, I would say, across the board. All right, yes. Um, and the name uh, Venus, uh, uh, obviously you have uh, the tennis star. Yeah, I mentioned that. Yeah, with the oh, with yeah. the fly trap and and, and the banana ramasong. Yeah, it was all it was all it was all <laughs> rapid fire. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> was rapid fire. Okay. Um, all right. So Asclepius, we'll, we'll see how he does in this round. But uh, you know, there there are a few things. Um, now, so there's a book called Asclepius, a secret discourse of Hermes. So it, I don't know if you remember from last episode. Mm. There's this Hermeticon, which is these books that were. Right believed to have been written by Hermes, but two of those books were actually a discourse between Asclepius and Hermes. Oh, like a little dialogue. Between a little dialogue, yeah, oh, the, okay. the, the discourse between the two of them. Um, and uh, in addition, so there is Asclepius uh, Wellness, which is apparently a pyramid scheme. <laughs> so, uh, selling health products from what i could tell from the supplements internet. yeah okay yeah so uh don't 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 google that um there's asclepius uh snake herb myth shows up in a number of different stories including Grimm's fairy tales mm. uh which was covered by uh grim reading one of our favorite podcasts yes and there is asclepius is a genus of flowering milkweed plants um which have some medicinal and poisonous uh properties so fitting yeah uh you know a little bit of a gorgon's blood thing there yeah, there yeah. is a an asclepius snake which is a venomous uh a non-venomous uh snake uh in the mediterranean uh and those were believed to actually have been the ones that were at his temple uh, okay they would, they would roll around uh, the floor of the temple so uh, then the Hippocrates I mentioned before the famous yep. oath, he started his career, uh, at the Asclepion on the Island of Kos. So as a historical figure, mm -hmm. um, and there is the 
Ophionuchus constellation or serpent bearer constellation, mm. which is thought to be a constellation of Asclepius, which was made in between him being killed and becoming a god. Like I think mm. that was kind of the the prize that Zeus first tried to offer to Apollo to appease his anger and, and he. <laughs> No, it's, part of the negotiation process. Yeah, the, yeah. The, those getting a constellation is kind of dime a dozen around here. So. <laughs> uh, I'm not taking it. And, and then, of course, the big one actually is is the rod of Asclepius. Yeah, uh, which is a symbol to medicine that, to this day. People get tattoos of it. The yeah. you know, jewelry. Uh, it it is uh, quite recognizable, but um, that may be even bigger in some ways than than the god himself mm. uh, at this time. So yeah. No, I think this one's pretty clear that it is Venus that that has the more recognizable iconography. Uh, yeah, I would agree. Uh, to this all, day. all due respect, I mean, there's a lot of good stuff packed into the Good Doctor there, but I think uh, I think Venus does take this, or Aphrodite and yeah. her twin Venus together have the cultural impact to, to win this round. No, I, I think that's right, and I, I think one of the reasons that they sort of stick around is because the sort of love that uh, Aphrodite represents and that she is not as well covered in Christianity. They, they don't really like to delve into that. So no. kind of fill, fills, a, fills a need uh, to this day. Absolutely. Uh, all right. And this takes us to our fifth and final round. We are tied up. Mm, we knew this was going to be a nail biter, and we were right. And, and it is a nail biter. And this takes us to Matinee Idol, where we decide who to bring back as a deity based on what kind of movie they would make. Yes. So, Very important criterion. Or, or again, or limited series. Right. Uh, so, so obviously, I'll, and I'll go first. Obviously, there are a lot of doctor shows. A lot of hospital shows are very right. popular. Right. Uh, lots of different ones over the years. Chicago Med, mm -hmm. part of the Chicago Disaster Trilogy. <laughs> yes. um, there is, you know, so there's a demand out there, uh, yeah. you know, the omniscient doctor who plays by his own rules, mm -hmm. but it's also been done before. You know, you could probably dub the name Asclepius over the name House yeah. in any uh, episode of that and oh, Hugh, Hugh Laurie vehicle, and just you know call it good. But who you know, who himself had quite the godlike complex, even yes. if he was technically was not technically omniscient, he acted as though he was. Yeah, right. Missed so, that so um, you know. But there aren't a lot of shows about giant serpents who also practice medicine. <laughs> now that you are correct about. So, you know, I went through trying to think of what, you know, kind of an original idea on this. So uh, this one I have. So Dr. Asclepius, you know, he graduates to godhood mm -hmm. and is assigned to work in the tiny black sea town of Sicily to pay for his hubris. <laughs> so the location is remote. The people are weird. Mm -hmm. And Asclepius just wants to be a giant snake and return to Rome. Yeah. And yet the people of Sicily, particularly one harbor pilot, Maggie era, Pinoy, <laughs> begin to grow on him. So I'm going to tentatively title that one Black Sea Exposure. Okay. Yeah. Um, and then, but you know, I had a couple other ideas that I'll go through real quick. Uh, I nearly went with another one. Uh, it had a more commercial potential for the Asclepius archetype. And that would have been a family show centered on the adventures of Asclepius, a doctor snake god who lives in the post-Roman Civil War frontier town, <laughs> moving there after he died and was resurrected as a god. Dr. Snake, as he's called, 
must win over the trust of his new community, who are not exactly thrilled about having a serpent doctor. <laughs> What's worse is that Dr. Snake is an outspoken humanitarian, supporting the minorities of Western Greece and having sympathy <laughs> for barmaids, uh, sex workers. Dr. Snake's struggles are amplified by the fact that he also randomly cares for three orphan children. Oh, man. And falls in love with a rugged but beautiful mountain nymph, the elusive <laughs> Epinoe. And attentively going to title that, would have titled that one, Dr. Asclepius Medicine Snake. <laughs> <laughs> That's really good. I, I, I was thinking you'd just go with Snake Doctor, but a little more poetic twist. That's yes, very nice. And, and, and then lastly, yeah. the, the last rejected one that I'll share with you is... Uh, <laughs> Asclepius, a young snake god doctor whose savant syndrome relocates from a quiet country life mm. to a surgical unit in the prestigious Rome hospital. So this time he's going from country to city. Yeah. Uh, and moves strongly supported by his mentor, Chiron. Having survived a troubled childhood, Asclepius is alone in the world and unable to personally connect with those around him because he is a snake. But yeah. he finds his niche using extraordinary medical skill an intuition to save lives and challenge the skepticism of his worshipers and tentatively titled that one, the God doctor. <laughs> nice. So, just one, so, one vowel away. Yeah. That, yeah. That's just, 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 uh, you know, so that, I feel like those are pretty original. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> just each radical in its form, it's content. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, but I'm going to go with the first one, uh, uh, because I just something about that, uh, black sea exposure just speaks, speaks to my younger self. Uh, and I, I, for some reason, I, I uh, cast Jack Quaid uh, as Asclepius. Hmm. Um, he's kind of had the same vibe as you know a, a young doctor uh, sure. out on his own. So yeah, love and it. And that's what I have. Very good. Uh, well, you know, I can't I can't stop thinking about the unsolved mystery of Adonis's death at, at the hands of that wild boar. It's been kind of yeah. haunting me ever since. Preparing for this episode, now, you know, I'm not a big conspiracy theory guy, but I've I've got questions. Right, There's a sure. lot of unanswered questions here. You would think Adonis, you know, given his his devoted following, he's got obviously Aphrodite on his side. Persephone's in love with him. Even Zeus is kind of a fan. You'd think, even though he's mortal, he'd be well cared for out yeah. there in the world. Um, so, as many suspect at the time, there must have been some kind of plot against him. It couldn't have been a simple explanation. Yeah. Um, nobody would suspect that the boar would have acted alone. So in this limited series, Aphrodite will turn to, turn her grief into action. She becomes an amateur detective on the trail to find yeah. who is responsible for the death of Donis, her lover, and solve his murder. So in each episode of the series, she gets into her flying swan car and tracks down the lead. And she interrogates one after the other to try to get to the answer. So she first goes to Ares, you know, interrogates her old, her old lover Ares, thinking he might have had that motive of jealousy that we talked about earlier. Um in fact, she lays into him, really interrogates him hard, but because she's Aphrodite, they're soon consumed by lust. They fall into each other's arms, as always, uh, and, and she doesn't get what she needs. She then goes after Artemis, we'll recall, had history, of course, with one of Aphrodite's prior prior victims. Yep. Again, a very intense interrogation ensues. She immediately then falls for and beds a buff young stable attendant who happens to be in the entourage. And so despite having these lusty distractions, she does have a very special talent. Every time the trail is about to go cold, Detective Aphrodite picks up a new clue through post-coital pillow talk. 
one of her great talents. So yeah. every time there's a little nugget that she takes her to the next episode. But lead after lead, she's going nowhere. Finally in the final act, she's at her wit's end. She's drowning her sorrows with her entire entourage all around her. They're all raising a glass. They're lamenting her failure to find Adonis's killer as a detective. But after a long night of drinking, there's an unexpected confession. And it's from her own son, Cupid. Oh, Through tears, Cupid admits to his mother that he too was out for a hunt on that faithful day. Fateful day, And one of his arrows hit the boar first. Now, the boar didn't see Cupid because, of course, he's tiny and he has wings and he flew away. But once that beast saw Adonis, Adonis, he rushed him, not because of the wound from Adonis' spear, because that boar was consumed by lust and had to have him. Now, we learn that Adonis' death was not a treacherous plot after all, but a crime of passion committed by a love-struck boar at the mercy of Cupid's arrow. Now, of course, at first, Detective Aphrodite is crushed by the news but then she finds a sense of closure. She knows her dear Cupid meant no harm and the pure love of a mother and her son endures. And so somewhat of a, of a bittersweet All right. fade. But then in a shocking post credits <laughs> twist, it's revealed that Aphrodite has been keeping the wild boar as a pet the whole time. <laughs> and as she stares at the animal, knowing what she knows now in a long close up, she prepares to either tear him limb from limb in her anger or perhaps seduce him. <laughs> The look in her eye could go either way. It's deliberately ambiguous. And we cut to black. <laughs> Setting up a cliffhanger, perhaps. For All right. Season, season two. two. So that's the arc of the series. That's, right. that's Detective Aphrodite. I like Uma Thurman in the lead on this one. You know, some okay. of the sexy charm of dangerous liaisons with the kind of unpredictable explosiveness of Kill Bill. You could probably get Timothy Chalamet to work in as the, as the young Adonis and kind of flashback sequences to kind of paint that backstory. Yeah. Um, for Cupid, I think you still have to go with the head of Paul Giamatti, CGI'd on, on the yeah, body of a baby. Yeah, it's, he's typecast at this point. <laughs> it's, it's, I mean, episode two, we're setting the tone. We've got to build on that. You have to have a callback. Um, and finally, in a, in, a, in a perhaps controversial bit of casting, uh, the boar is voiced by Woody Allen himself. Um, because the audience needs to find him both sort of charmed and repulsed by him at the same time. And yeah. He's really pretty yeah, good. Ambiguous character, yeah. That's, that's right. Uh, so that is Detective Aphrodite. All right, interesting. So yeah, that that's that's very interesting. Um, you know, I as you may tell, may have been able to tell by my not really settling on a final <laughs> uh, uh, version of it. You know, only kind of at the last minute, you know, picking my way to to Black Sea exposure. Uh, even though I did enjoy the name uh, Doctor uh, Doctor Snake. Uh, Doc, uh, Dr. Asclepius medicine snake. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, but uh you know, I think I, I think I'm going to go with uh, Detective Aphrodite on this one. I, I think I think I, I do as well. I think there's a there's a nice episode by episode arc there. Uh yep. each one unpredictable, lots of it's got romance, it's got lust, it has mystery. Yeah, the, several twist endings. So, I yeah. Procedural. But yeah, that's right. There's, she's she's also got to go by the book. I mean, she's she's the amateur <laughs> detective, but she's still gotta gotta find follow the law so i think i would agree which i guess resolves our tie does it not yes it does and for just a second when i thought you i wasn't sure what you were gonna say it's like (laughs) oh no he's gonna put us back into a tie (laughs) uh but no uh we do have a three two not an overwhelming uh win you know whenever it comes down to the uh 
the movie round, you know, it's a it's a close one. That's right. This one was so. So Aphrodite takes the golden apple this time. Yes, she does it yet again. Yes. Well, we're not going to say too much about our next episode because it's going to be it's going to be something special. I think we can leave it at that. But we are, as we said earlier, we're getting toward the end game. Yeah, we have a plot in place. You will hear more about it as we get closer. But um, we've got enough winners now that there's really a really good critical mass of champions to begin to square off as we get to our final episodes of the season. So stay tuned for more details on that. Uh, you will have them shortly. We were excited to bring those details to you. Uh, thank you for listening. You know where yep. you can find us. You know you can leave us good reviews. You can tell your friends. The socials have been really on fire lately, and Andrew's <laughs> been uh, doing very, very good work there. So um, appreciate the listening. Also, a reminder, the official God versus God playlist, I can't stress this enough, every week or every episode, two new songs. Two new songs, yeah. And it's turning out to be a really beautiful, eclectic uh, group of music. So definitely check that out on Spotify. Uh, I think that's all we got, Andrew. Anything yeah, to add to, as, as we no. wrap it up? Uh, awesome. Thanks for listening. Once Thank again. you. Thanks, everybody. Pleasure as always. And we will see you uh, next time, episode 11, where yes. uh, we look forward to joining you once again. Uh, so long from the good people here at God versus God. <laughs> Bye-bye. Thank you, folks.